Hi, this is Phil Kerner, the Tool and Die Guy, and welcome to this edition of The Journeyman. So before we get started, uh, this broadcast tonight is being sponsored by Industrial Sales and Manufacturing right here in Erie, Pennsylvania, ismerie.com. Please check that website out, and we appreciate their help telling these stories of American craftsmen. So tonight, a special treat, a gentleman I worked with many years ago. And uh, the problem with me and this guy, uh, we have so much in common because we love the trade so much, but then... He and I are on 1,000% opposite uh, spectrums on politics, and he's very outspoken. Uh, Online, I try to keep that to a minimum. He doesn't. So uh, I knew I had to call him. I knew I had to call him. And I said, as long as we stay off politics, we have so much in common. He agreed. So you're going to hear a great story. Jack is a great storyteller, and uh, he's been around the trade for uh, uh, half a century. And uh, like a lot of us uh, older guys, Came up in the trade uh, by chance. So I hope you appreciate Jack's story tonight. Uh, I'd like to welcome into uh, the tool room, to the journeyman, Mr. Jack Curlin. So Jack Curlin, welcome to the journeyman. Thanks for joining me tonight. Hello, Phil. It's great to have you here. You know, uh, Jack and I worked together about 30 years ago, and uh, he's got a great story to tell in the trade. And uh, Jack, just for the people that are going to listen to this uh, broadcast, uh, where'd you start out? Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, went to a, one of the schools down there, the equivalent to like McDowell around here. It was a, a, a county school, but it was rather large. Mm-hmm. And uh, Next my, my grandparents came from, from Austria, Hungary. They were, actually were winemakers that, that immigrated to this country. No kidding. Yeah. So did, did, was there a tech school there, or how did you get into the trade? What ended up happening there? Uh, actually, I took what was called college prep. It was to go to college because my parents said I had to go to college, you know, but I didn't want to. But by the time I got in my later grades in school, it was pretty obvious that I, I didn't want to go to college. I wasn't interested in it. So uh, what happened is when I graduated, I, I had a counselor in our school that was very, very good. And uh, – Right after, right after I got out of high school, he called me. He said he had a couple jobs for me to look at. One of them was a pattern maker at Baldwin Piano. And the other one was uh, a tool and die apprentice at a little tool shop called Whitney Capus Tool and Die in, in, outside of Cincinnati. So uh, I thought I didn't know what a tool and die maker was, although I knew my uncles were tool and die makers. I didn't know what they did. you know. Uh, so uh, I chose to, to go apply for that job. And uh, when I went there, and, and what I really thought it was, that's how much I knew about tool and die making. I thought it was I'd be making screwdrivers and hammers and things like that. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. Right. Had any idea of the complexity well, I, of tool making. And I, and I think a lot of a lot of people that aren't familiar with the trade don't understand. They know it's a great trade, or it used to be. Yeah. And, but they, yeah, the tool and die part doesn't make sense to a lot of people. But uh, keep going. No, it doesn't. So I went to and applied for the job. And and I really liked what they showed me in, in the shop and everything. I said, I told them, I really like this. And I had I just didn't think I had at least a bit of a chance of getting hired there. I thought, oh, there's going to be these guys that took shop in school and do all kind of stuff. Uh, they were going to be way ahead of me. So I went home and I forgot about it. A couple of weeks later, 
this shop calls me up. Uh, Bill Cabas was the guy's name. Called me up and says, and I didn't know who he was. I'd forgotten about it. He says, from Whitney Cabas to die. And I said, oh, hi, how are you doing? He says, well, we made a decision. We interviewed about 10 people. We picked you. And after I picked the phone up off the floor, I said, really? You know? He says, yeah. He says, when would you like to start? And I said, well, when do you want me to start? And he said, how about Monday? So I was working at Kroger's at the supermarket where I'd worked during high school. So I told him I had a job and I had to leave. So they said, you're fine with it. So that's when I started at Whitney Campus to die. How big of a place was that? Oh, about 10 guys, maybe 15 guys. And of course, I started out doing stuff like like uh, drilling holes and, and working with fixtures and stuff like that. And, and when they needed, uh, once every day, just about in the afternoon, I would spend on a truck driving around Cincinnati, delivering parts to heat treat and plating and, and picking up parts and picking up steel. Sometimes I wouldn't get back to like maybe seven or eight o'clock at night from these uh my truck driving part of the job. So, now, so what year was really a nice place to work. What what year was that, Jack? That uh, was about nineteen fifty eight. Nineteen fifty eight or sixty eight? Fifty eight. Wow, no kidding. So, um, how long did you stay there? Did you did you were you on an apprenticeship? Uh, no, yeah, I was on an apprenticeship there, but then uh, I worked a couple of years at it, and then. Uh, uh, my wife, the woman that I ended up marrying, her father was an engineer at GE in Erie, Pennsylvania. He got transferred to Cincinnati, and I met my wife. And uh, uh, our parents, eventually, he got transferred back to Erie, and we ended up getting married. And she, after about a few months of that, she couldn't stand being away from her mother. So she taught me into moving up to Erie. So I moved up to up to Erie in nineteen oh, let's say nineteen sixty, something like that, sixty one. And uh got a job at a at a little tool shop. It was called uh Furman Brown. They made tools and and uh, things for the mining industry. And that was the first tool shop I worked in in Erie. Where was that? It's uh thirty third and Reed. Uh they have a building, they have a place, they're still in business, I think, now on uh I'm on Perry Highway, I think, okay. uh, south of Erie. So how long did you work there? I worked there for a couple of years. And then from there, I went to GE and worked in a department called Detail Department. It was like a little little tool room where we made uh, parts for uh, for uh, research parts and parts, uh, you know, prototype parts to put in their generators and stuff. Now, when we back and I worked up- there. When we back up to your experience in Cincinnati before you left, did you complete your apprenticeship? I mean, did, did they have? No, I, I didn't. I, I I quit my apprenticeship and and came up to Erie, and that was it. I, I from then on, I learned it on my own. No kidding. Just by moving from shop to shop, and uh, uh, so I worked. I worked. I went to GE and worked for a while, and uh, for about two or three years, and then there was going to be a strike in the Schenectady plant. And our plant was going to close down or lay off a lot of people. So uh, I didn't even want, I didn't want to get laid off or be without a job for even a day. So I, I saw a job in the paper at Penn Erie. So I went and applied for it and I got that job. Uh, and I have to say, I started in the tool trade when I was 17 and I was never out of work a day in my life until I retired in 1970, not even one day. That was the closest I came when GE had that strike 
it, and they're having uh, trouble getting parts and stuff that are getting shut down or laid people off or something. And I left before they did it. I didn't give them a chance. And that got cut out a little bit. What what year did you retire? Uh, I retired when I was 70, 2010. So uh, 1957, 1958, you said? To 19, to yeah, So fifth, like 50 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, that's, you know. So I, the the uh, 52 years, yeah. So I have the same story. You know, that's why I'm such an advocate for our trade. Um, I never missed a day of work or got laid off. I've never, never, never got laid off, ever, no matter how bad the economy was. No. Uh, and it wasn't, though, Jack. It wasn't just because we were toolmakers. I'm so sorry to say this. It's because we were good toolmakers, right? Because right. when times yeah. get bad, they're going to let the, the low-hanging fruit go. If, you know, the, the good guys, right. they don't want to see those guys go somewhere else. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, you, uh, I know you've got, we've got a lot of stories of ground to cover here, but I know you mentioned in our little chat before we got started here, you know, toolmaking uh, millions of years ago. What do you, what's your theory on that? Well, uh, actually, when you go back in time, people think toolmaker. Now it's getting to be a thing that people don't even know about toolmaking or what it is. But when I was young, like when I was working at Kroger's and I I got the chance to get an apprenticeship in a tool die shop, uh, the guys I worked with, oh, my, I know my, my uncle works as a tool die maker. He makes $5,000 a year. You know, it was even back, back then was really well thought of as a trade or an occupation. Yes. But, the tool and die trade goes back 150 million years. Back when we were hunter-gatherers roaming the earth in small groups, the two most important people in a clan or a tribe or a group, or whatever you want to call these small groups of wonders, the two most important people were the hunter were the tool and die makers or tool makers and the healing people, the, the medicine people. The, the tool makers made the the... The, they napped the flint and made the hatchets and knives and tools that they used uh, that, that they survived with. The, the, the tips on the arrows were done by tool makers. And, of course, uh, the healers were very important, too, because they kept people from dying. So that's how far back it goes. And now, even now in modern times, I would tell people, the tool, I t- tell apprentice when I would hire them, the tool and die maker is the most important job in the world. I, and everything you look at, this phone you're holding in your hand, everything you look at, everything you touch has its roots in a tool and die maker. If it wasn't for the person that made even the automated equipment, that's tool makers. The, 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 the equipment that makes you know, the steering wheel in your car, it, it comes out of a mold. Every part of your car goes back to a tool maker. The, the body comes from big, uh, from big stamping dies. So uh, it's I'm, very important. Two things I always said about the tool making trade, you know, I know we're both biased <laughs> to say the least, yeah. but a, the backbone of this country are the tool makers B right. B the Cadillac of the trades. I think tool makers. Right. I agree with both of those, uh, but, no, but I'm not biased. It's just, it's just a fact that everything I look at in this room, I'm looking around, everything I look at goes back to tooling. There has to be tooling to do everything. Mm-hmm. And so even a, a heart surgeon, uh, my best friend's father was a heart surgeon. And we got in a discussion one day uh, about the difference in pay because he made millions and I made thousands, you know, and uh, I, he sort of understood. I said, all the tools you operate with, you do, you use to perform your, 
your skill, your trade, it, they're all go back to a toolmaker. If, if it wasn't for a toolmaker made those tools, you couldn't do much of a hard operation. Right. And the machines that, that keep the person alive while you're operating, that's a tool and die maker. It comes from, comes from tooling. I agree. You know, uh, preaching to the choir here, you know, as you've gone through yeah. it, one of the things um, I've always enjoyed talking about, and I know you'll like talking about this, um, you know, where I work now, I'm, there's, I'm the only person I think there that uh, I think that finished their uh, state apprenticeship and being a tool maker in my past, um, I have more tools than anybody. And I know um, we yeah. all, why it was, we had this love of tools and uh, you know, you, you had to have that Gerstner box on your bench and you had, yeah, to have, had three of them. You had three of them. Well, I had a, the, a big one, a smaller one and had a base that sat on. And I, I will, and I do know uh, when I interviewed Mr. Forbes, uh, uh, he kept his Gerstner. And I know you sold some of your tools. You said you instantly regretted it. I'll never sell mine. But uh, um, I did tell you that, huh? That yeah, was terrible. Did. I should never have done that. <laughs> before we before we talk about that, though, um, you, did you keep your Gerstner boxes, though? No, I sold everything oh. to a young guy. To a young guy that was starting a trade. At high tech tool and design, and the guy that took over high tech for me when I retired called me one day. Says, "Would you like to sell your tools?" I I, I always said that I was going to be buried with my tools, but uh, uh, there was a young guy there that was, was an apprentice and wanted tools. So I finally thought it over. I thought, you know, I'm never going to use these again. So I sold everything to him for a really cheap price. Come on, and it turned out. Please tell me what you sold them for. I'm just curious. Does it matter? A thousand dollars. A thousand dollars. A thousand. And you know how many tools I had. You know how many tools I had. Well, you know, I had everything. I had. I had. I had a, a, every tool you needed. Well, you know, see, to more, make it worse, it didn't make it. Where I work, we have an inspection department. Okay, so uh-huh. everybody depends on the inspection department. And if you need something, you just go. You know, sign it out. And uh, that's a very different thing for me. In fact, the, our inspection department comes to me when they need something crazy to check something, okay? And I always tell yeah. them, we didn't have a QC department. So if you wanted to check oh, work, you had to have a bunch of tools to do it because you couldn't. You didn't want to keep going to Jack Curl and say, can I borrow your mic? Can I borrow your indicator? Can I borrow your yeah. You ended up with these great sets of tools. So you sold right. them all. And what was the big regret? What happened? Well, I just said, I, I know I'm never going to use them again. I hadn't used them for 20 years because, you know, the last 20 years uh, that I worked, I, I was running a tool shop, so I didn't really use my tools. I didn't even look at them. They were stored away in a room. Uh, it's just that I didn't have them anymore. I felt like I felt like, like you took my clothes away or something. Well, that, I, I still can't think about it because I, I think I wish I had my tools. And I, and I don't have anything I would do with them, but I, it was just part of my – my confidence in life of having all these tools that I needed. You know, every night when I leave the shop, I lock up my Gerster. That was my father's. And yeah. I have, uh, I saw it. Used to have a picture of your wife in it in the top. Uh, I still do. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a different model, but, um, different, 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 yeah, different model. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, uh, that box is my connection to my past. Besides being a great toolbox. Yeah. Oh, my God. Besides being a great toolbox. Um, you know, I keep all my precision measuring equipment still in that wooden box. And uh, 
you know, that every morning, people say, do you remember your dad? Because my dad died when I was nine. I see, I think of my dad every right. morning and all day because I see his tools there. You know, a lot of his stuff still says Fritz on it. Oh, that's, you know, yeah. and, and uh, I, did, I was just using his planer gauge for a setup today. You know, a Lufkin planer right. gauge from the 50s, still immaculate. Wow. You know? So I feel for you there, man. I'm so sorry you sold those things. But did the kid work out? Was he any good? What happened? There? No, that's what I was going to say. As I told, when I sold it to him, I said the one thing you're not to sell these tools. If you want, if you decide you don't want to be a tool maker, you want to give, you don't, you know, you're not going to do it. Call me and I will buy them back. Cause I was already thinking, man, I wish I wasn't doing this. And I couldn't get out of it cause I was helping them load them onto a cart to take out to his workbench, you know? And, uh, it turned out he ended up getting fired for something he was stealing or doing something uh, he wasn't supposed to be doing. I think he stole gas or something. Anyway, he got, as last I knew, he took off, he took off to Florida. My tools and all, I don't, I don't know the guy's name. <laughs> He's gone. I bought them all on eBay, Jack. I paid 50 bucks for them. <laughs> yeah, don't tell me that. <laughs> I'll sell them back to you for two grand. I'm a nice well, guy. <laughs> you, could, you couldn't lie to me because they got my name on every one of them. <laughs> oh my god you know I, I, that reminds, reminds me of what, one time i was running a shop down on state street and a guy came in and uh he went to sell his tool making tools so i bought them all for 150 dollars and uh a lot of the tools that i had were ones i bought from him you know like sign sign plates and little uh, uh a lot of little tools a lot of little one two three blocks and different things like that all had his name on them but they, they were all part of my tools that went when I sold my tools. Absolutely. Now, let's take a trip down memory lane. We talked about this before, and I think we did. Do you remember when the tool truck used to drive around and you, they'd let you out of your shop? Sure do. Five or ten minutes. Sure do. Now, the tool truck, to me, remember when you were a kid? I don't know, in Cincinnati, they had can we it. Say what it was, can you say what that was called? We'll talk about we that. should be that. Well, we'll talk about yeah. that. But the, the, yeah. the tool truck was the equivalent of the ice cream truck when we were kids. Right. Right? They'd say the tool yeah, they'd truck. They'd all go out there and stand and, and, and dicker on the prices of them. Right. So, you know, as you're building your tools, imagine this truck showing up, loaded up with Starrett tools, indicators, micrometers, anything. Right. Everything. In this step van. But we would go out there, and what was the guy's name? And everybody's going to die when we say this. But what did we call him? The Jew. The Jew. The guys yeah, that they, they, remember the Jew. They, they go around I the shop knew. like wildfire. The Jews, the Jews here. The Jews here. I was just right. telling my wife the other night watching that. We were watching a, a television show, uh, Deadwood or something like that. And the guy, the one guy on the show, they called him the Jew. I said, oh, my God. I, I told her, uh, Norm Norm Enstrom was his name. This guy I never pulled. knew his name. I just called. I remember guys. Yeah. And they say, hey, Jew. How much for the mics? That was it. And he didn't even yeah. bat an eye. That did not bother him at all. No, that's it. That's what he was called, the Jew. The Jew is here. And, and, and then they would put it on your – the shop would pay for the tools to take them out of your pay. Right. So you would, you would come in with a new pair of the one mics, uh, a, a new uh, grinding vice or something. They would take it off your pay. Right. So, pay. so all my tools were, I always hit a tool account that every week money came out of my pay for my tools. Like 10 bucks a week. And that's, yeah. 10 bucks, 15, depending on how much you owed. And that's how I bought all my tools, paid for them all. And, uh, 
uh, it was really a, really a, a good way to do it. So, you know, nowadays I don't think, like you said, they have the tools like we used to have. Well, I can you. I don't even think there's a tool truck anymore. No, no, discount tool got bought out by some big company. They're they're not they they aren't no more. That was the name. I do remember that discount tool. Oh, that, that was, was that's where he came out of. We all do them. I didn't know that until I until years later when I was running a company and found out that 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 Enstrom, Norm Enstrom, and Discount Tool were the same thing. I didn't know that the Jew the Jew came from Discount Tool. Tool, I just it just appeared out of nowhere to me. You know, now, when you think about like it, Santa Claus. Exactly. When you think about that, what a great business back in Erie, Pennsylvania, in the 1970s and 80s. You got 150 yep. tool shops. You buy a bunch of shit on stuff wholesale, and uh, uh, then you you know put the markup on it and, and and drive around all day selling this stuff. Yep. How great! What a great business. Oh, he, he was a great guy too. He would he would deal with you on them. I bought a brand new pair of um, Minitoyo Opta One mics for thirteen fifty. I can still remember that thirteen fifty. I still have them there out in my garage. <laughs> unbelievable so um let's talk a little bit now uh you, you worked at ge i never knew that so you go uh, so yeah. where did you end up in the mold making um tool and die making deal was that up it, where, where did they, tell me while i was there i would i would uh you can always change some people who work at the same jobs forever but i wanted to to learn all the different machines they had there so i would I would bid on jobs when they come open and change. I was, I went to one place, one place all over the building. I worked in, in like eight different departments in three years. And one of the jobs I did was, was, uh, was a, one of the tracer lathe. And I don't know if you want to know what a tracer lathe is. It, it follows, it, it traces a shape onto a part it, it, on the back of the machine. You mount a template or a model. Right. And then you set up a stylus. To follow it. Just, just like a, just like a, a decal. Or hydrotelic, except it's a lathe. Well, uh, I did that. It was one of the jobs I did there. Then I, then when I took the job at Penn Erie, believe it or not, they had gotten a, what they called an NC machine. And they were going to try to do tool work on it. And that's what I was hired for, was to learn how to run that with another guy. What year was that? And this wasn't, what, what year? That was uh, 60, let so now we're looking at the tape machines. It's a punched out paper tape, right? Oh yeah, I had a punch out. It wasn't CNC, it was NC. Right. And you had to punch out all these holes. Oh, it was it was laborious. It was terrible. Well, I, t I always and, tell people, uh, I always tell people that was a later version of a player piano. Yeah, it didn't work. It didn't. It, it just it just didn't work out. But in the meantime, the uh, Pandaria had two tracer lays there, and. Uh, uh, one time I asked the owner, I said, he was sort of about a, uh, he's not a real outgoing guy. He's sort of just walk. He say something to me and walk away. And he said, I said, how come you don't run those, those uh, tracer lathes ever? Cause they had a lot of round work that, that would fit into it that I could see would work in a tracer lathe. He says, Oh, only the top toolmakers can run those. And I, I says, well, I can run one. And he looked at me and he says, Oh, and he walked away. Well, that was that. And that what, a, what? How rude, you know? Right. But I still, they never ran it. And then I got to talking to guys. Said, Nobody really knows how to run, run them. They, they just can't do it. And I said, oh, okay. So he comes out about a month later with a with a rubber mold for Lords. 
pictures, you know, drawings of it. And he says, can you make this on a tracer lathe? I says, yeah, I think so. So uh, 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 he gave me the job to do. And it was like eight, it was a stack mold. It was eight inserts, four on the top, eight cores of cavities, four on the top and four on the bottom. And it made uh, the gasket that goes into a gas meter's there's right. one outside of your house right now. If you open that up, there's a rubber mold there uh, of, the, of that of that uh, shape to fit in there. And uh, so I uh, I made a template for it, and I traced those the cores and cavities. It took me a long time because uh, after they were hardened, I had to go back in. I had to leave a little stock on. I had to go back in and machine them hard and uh, uh, with carbide. And I got the job done. It worked out good. And just one thing led to another where pretty soon I was doing all around work for the shop, everything. Now at this point, at this point, it it sounds like though you've done a lot, but you're not really a tool maker, mold maker yet. Right? No, no. So when does that that happen? Well, what happened there is uh, we started doing, uh, they started getting somehow me and this other guy, uh, that worked there with me. We started getting work from uh, Cope's Falcon for making valves for the nuclear industry. And uh, that became a, a big thing. And next thing you know, working in Penn Erie, I had a, a crew of guys, of eight guys working for me, doing milling and making all these parts for Cope's Falcon. So we, uh, Penn Erie, who, which was the mold shop, had all this other stuff. Besides, I was doing all the round work for them. And then, uh, I worked there for doing that for quite a while. And then uh, uh, I don't know if you remember uh, a, a guy named Frank Jarecki that uh, that was a, a captain in the Polish Air Force, stole a Russian MiG and flew to this country. Or flew Actually flew to Denmark and then came to this country. Well, he went to Alliance College. He got a degree, in, a chemical degree, but he started, he had a tool shop, a machine shop down in Franklin. And he wanted to, to open one up in Erie. So he approached me and this other guy about would we open a shop for him. So uh, at that time, I left Penn Erie. Uh, we bought all the equipment, all the machines, and opened up a, uh, a shop called Prescott Precision in the old bus bar down on State Street. And I ran that for about three or four years. Uh, and that was a busy job because I had to work seven days a week because I had a second shift. I had to come in on, on Sunday night and get a boy. And uh, I decided I, I wanted to get back into tool making. So uh, I went to Kerner Tool and Die, applied oh, for a job there. Was it still Kerner's or was, had it changed to Catherine by then? No, it was Kerner's. It was Kerner Tool and Die. But the, the Catherine had taken over, but he hadn't changed the, the name at that time. Okay. And then, uh, and then uh, some of the guys from Penn Erie, when I started the Prescott Precision, went with me. One of them was Joe Pepicello. Okay. And uh, so I went to, I went up to, to Catherine and applied. The next night, Joe went up and applied. We both got hired, so we went up there. Joe and I had gone around to different jobs previously, so we knew each other well. So we went up there to work. And that's where I really learned, that's where I really learned tool making, right? you, and the mold making part of it. Now, at and that time, just, at that time, they, Catherine's, Kerner's, whatever, they were still really what eighty uh, percent um, diecast, right? Yeah, and, and they did like like uh, the biggest majority, the biggest customers, Parker White Metal. Then they did Dolwar drivers, but then they started doing toys for Kenner and and the Fisher Price, 
and I started making the, the plastic molds for the toys, for the, the Fisher Price, the little farm and all that, mm-hmm. and the firehouse and all that. I started, I was doing the molds for those. And uh, I was doing those molds, and your brother, Freddie Kerner, was, he did a lot of the burning for me. I did some of my own, but he did a lot of it. Well, that, that, was, that he, was his specialty. You know, that was his deal, the EDM. That's what he did. Yeah, he liked working for me because everything I had drawn out, I had a sketch for every every electrode. I gave him a sketch. I gave him dimensions, uh, how to mic into it, how to locate it, how deep it went. And he said he liked working for me because my work was so organized, and that fit his personality because he was organized. So my brother, we did a lot of jobs together. My brother Freddie was very what we would call OCD, right? I mean, he 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 was very uh, um, he was very oriented that way and uh oh yeah it's not a spot on his car <laughs> well you know dick dick forbes in the last interview told the story uh, you might as well just uh, you might as well confirm it because i remember you telling yeah. the story with Fred, freddie and yeah. his white shirts yeah that's a he wore to work at the edm department with all the cart uh, graphite floating around in the air and <laughs> he was still still <laughs> he didn't get dirty very i don't know how he did it you know you know, I, all I have to do is walk by a table with grease on it, and, yeah. and I and I have to. It's got to be on my pants. I don't know what ha- I try to stay very neat. I'm sure you did too, but it's always amazing. Uh, yeah, that the, that's a very funny story about him. Now, over the years, and I, one of the things I enjoyed the most about working with you uh, were some great stories. And uh, I know back in the '60s, uh, there were a, real, a lot of characters in this trade. And uh, oh yeah, so let's talk about some of the characters. And I'm going to drop some names. And I hope anybody that listens to this isn't offended because we're not going to. These are all good guys. They just said they just said yeah. traits that were interesting. I can't remember, so I'm going to throw out some names. And well, my name will be first, right? <laughs> oh no, no, because I didn't work with you when you were young, so I don't. You, you have stories on yeah. me. I don't have any about you. But uh, yeah. right, so um. Uh, did you have a Sam Schember story, or was that not you? Was that Dick Forbes that had that? Oh, no, I got oh Sam Schember. Yeah, he was uh, he was a, a decal guy. It really, he was a really really uh, he was the best decal operator around. Well, so he was wait, the wait, decal so operator. This gets this gets better. So Sam Schember taught Dick Forbes. Dick Forbes taught me, and then I taught Dick's son Kyle. Isn't that cool? Right. Four generations there. So anyway, Sam Schember. What uh, what was his deal? I know there was a few things. Well, as he got older, that that when I came along, as he got older, he uh, he was just like an old grouch. He was just getting mad at people and and, and imagine things and get mad at you. And uh, I, I, like myself, one time he quit talking to me, <laughs> and he would for about two months he wouldn't say a word to me. And he why? didn't talk to me. If I say something to him, he wouldn't answer. I had no idea. I said, "What's the matter, Sam?" He just turned around and walk away, and then all of a sudden. After two months, and all of a sudden, he come start talking to me like nothing ever happened. <laughs> you know, he he would do that to other people too. He just he just he would just he just well, what it was, the decal was like the the like, it was the center of the shop. Everything everything went through the decal around the decal. But then as as we started doing different kinds of work, we didn't have as much tracing. You know, a lot of it was burned. You know, a lot of stuff was burned and and done like that. So he wasn't as important. Wasn't the center of the shop anymore. The, the three decals they had there were at one time were running all the time. Then it got down. And sometimes he was the only one running them. And then uh, 
uh, I don't know. He, well, I would go use the Deckler or something. He just didn't. He'd get mad. I don't know why. Now, I'm going to really jog your memory here. You told me a story about this crazy guy that you worked with. I can't remember where that handed you a crumpled up note. That's all I remember. Oh yeah, yeah, that was yeah, that was a tool grinder, and he. Now where was where, where was this at? This was a Kerner tool and die. All right. And I'm not going to say the guy's name. In fact, I don't quite remember it. Uh, he'd, had a, he'd been injured in World War II, and he had a plate, plate in his head. So when he would talk, he would go, uh, 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 before he could say, before a word would come out. And he, he would do stuff like, like uh, back in those days, there was this, these Polish jokes going around. And one kid in the shop, Jim Young, was telling somebody a Polish joke. And he heard it. And he, I guess he was Polish. He went up and grabbed him and started shaking until Jim Young thought his head was going to pop off. <laughs> uh, another, another time, uh, he came up to me. I was, I, was work, I was running an EDM machine. He came up. He had a little note. And it was all folded up real tiny. And he, he, and he, <clears throat> he kept hand. I kept trying to grab it. His hand kept jerking when he would do that. Finally, I got the note. I opened it up. And it says, I'm crazy, and I have a gun. Uh, oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> what do you do with that? In 1970, I, I, I actually, I actually was was setting the depth on a burn, and I I forgot to go back and reset it, and I burned it too deep. <laughs> I was thinking about that, you know. Anyway, then he came up a couple of days later, and he says there, he thought there was government spies spying on him. He only worked a half a day. He was the best tool grinder you ever saw. You give him a sketch of a tool, and he'd have it back to you in 15 minutes. Uh, but he came up to me one day. He says, there's, there's, uh, there's uh, three guys in his shop that are government spies spying on me. And I said, oh, who? And he said, well, the one guy's not here anymore. He said, he works at Parker White Battle. And he said his name. And, and, I, and I said, yeah. And he says, and the other one, there's another one. He says, Dick Forbes. <laughs> and he said, he's a spy. And, and, it's, and I'm waiting. He says, and there's one more. And I'm saying, he said, you know who that is? And I know. I know. He, said, he stuck his finger in my chest. And he said, you. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm not a government spy. <laughs> if I was a government spy, I wouldn't be wasting my time in this little pool shop spying on you. <laughs> but he just was crazy like that, you know? All right. So, all right, uh, Harold Shrek. Uh, oh boy, oh boy, uh, he was the guy at his Forest mentioned was really good at math and everything. But, he was really, uh, good, at, he was really he, good at what? What was he good at? at? Math. He was really good at math and okay. stuff like that. Uh, now, but anyway, uh, Shrek had, he was going hunting one day down in the mountains, and he he he, he was a bow hunter, and he went to string up his bow, and he did it by putting the bow around his ankle. And the bull flipped around and knocked his eye out. It was on his cheek. And he was down, way down by Cain or somewhere like that. So he gets in, the car, in his car, and he drives all the way back in here with his eye on it, like hanging out on his, on his face, you know. And he goes to, to Dr. Sivak, it used to be an eye doctor here, and he goes to his office. Well, it ended up that they had to take his eye out, and he had a glass eye. And they always said that he was never quite the toolmaker he was before then. In fact, he was a, he was just, just uh, he was really rough. <laughs> he was uh, really a hack when I knew him. You know, well, you said his, depth, he would do his depth perception was all messed up, right? 
Yeah, yeah, he would he would like walk right over to top of molds, like walk. Uh, he was like Mr. Magoo, is just what he was like. <laughs> and uh, like 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 one time he was out. He had a he would do these great big work on these great big molds. He had a big hand grinder. He was trying to do some or do burning oil or something. And and as he was walking around with a hand grinder, he tripped over part of his mold that was laying on the floor where it shouldn't have been laying. He tripped over it. He fell on the floor and he was laying on a hand grinder and he was riding it around like a scooter <laughs> until Dallas went out, pulled the plug out out of it, shut it off. And he got up, he brushed himself off, he plugged it in, and started going right back to it. <laughs> and Dallas unplugged it. He says, "No, you're not going to do that until you move this stuff around here." So he got the cord caught around his feet and ended up surfing on his hand on his on his grinder. He got tripped over something, but the thing this was a big big grinder it had a like a like a six inch wheel in it, a cup wheel, and it, it lay on that under him on the floor. And it was rolling him around because it was running yet. It was still turned on. It was still plugged in. Well, back then there wasn't uh, safeties. There weren't safety switches. No, no, there were no safety switches. So I had to run and pull the plug out of the wall. So but he was going to get right back up and do the same thing again. So. Didn't that something else? Didn't he used to try and pick up his end mills instead of using paper? He used his finger. Was it well, no, he would. He couldn't see well, and he would. He would forget to turn the machine off. He he'd go go try to go grab the end mill to take it out of the machine. It was still turning, <laughs> and then he he would cut himself. And he would just wrap a towel around his around his hand, and everybody go around the shop. Everybody say, "Oh, uh, Shrek's at it again." You walk by and he have a, a, a rag, a shop rag wrapped around his hand with blood dropping off the end of it. He'd still just be working like nothing happened. <laughs> so, were you there when the fire happened? No, I was. I had left. I had left about a few months before it happened. Now, we're, before you, we go to where you went next, um, I always like to find out because I was so young, I, as I told Dick, and, and you said, "Oh, I went uh, okay." When, uh, but, but what uh, was it like? You used to really like to talk about um, what it was like to work in that barn. Oh well, one thing about it, you could see where the you know the in a, in a dairy barn they got these these gutters where the cow uh, manure stuff goes. They were still there; they were just cemented up, so you could see where they were. But it was it was beautiful. You looked out over the golf course. You there? Yeah, I'm still here. Go ahead. Yeah, they looked out over the golf course. It was a beautiful. The best day best day at work was Tuesday because uh, that was Ladies' Day Lady when they played Lady golf. Of course, that's right. Yeah, so I had a hard time paying attention to my machine and not looking out the window. Yeah, but uh, because, but it was a very unique place, right? Oh, very unique. Really nice. Golf course on three sides. Um, it's just just a great shop. It was run run really well. What what uh, what made you leave? Uh, well, it, it turned out that uh, that Bill Hilbert. Well, first Joe Duska left and started a company called Red Dog, that was uh, that was backed by Parker White Metal. After they tried at one time, they tried to buy. After your father and your uncle died, they tried to buy uh, Kerner Tool and Die. And they sold it to John Caffin instead. So they sort of weren't happy about that. So they started up, they were going to start up a tool shop of their own called Red Dog. And they, they hired Joe Dusko away to run Red Dog. And uh, then a short time later, or about a year later. Did you, uh, did you know that that's where I started my apprenticeship? Where? Red Dog. 
Hey, Jack, you're breaking up. Out, Red Dog, out in Girard. Yes, I did. And uh, uh, that was a party animal shop. I, that's where I learned how to drink. Oh, beer. my God, yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. But anyway, uh, then about a year later, uh, Hilbert came to me and said that, that he was gonna he was going in with, with the Parkers and Joe Duska and they were gonna buy a shop, a small tool shop down on Payne Avenue called Wright Precision. And he wanted me to go with him and run the shop for him. And so by that time I'd already had experience because I'd run Jerecki Industries for, for three years, so he thought I'd be a good fit. So uh, we went down after after he went down two weeks later, I went down and then uh, a couple other guys went down and uh your brother didn't come down at that time he didn't come down until after the fire because mm-hmm. i went down and uh they already had a, a guy running the shop and i didn't feel comfortable when we got there taking that guy's place because uh, he had done it for so many years and I, I didn't think it was right to buy the shop and then get rid of this guy put this young guy in like me you know mm-hmm. and this guy knew the shop really well so I told him I didn't, after we got there, I told him I didn't want to do that. So uh, I just worked there as a toolmaker all the time. How long did you stay there? Oh, a few years. I can't remember how many years. Maybe 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 four or five years. Well, back in those days, Dick Forbes, like you interviewed him, and he stayed one place his whole life. Mm-hmm. Most people moved around from shop right. to shop every two or three years. You'd move to a different shop. And boy, and I, you, I, you, I, you, you learned a lot doing that. Right, because you every go into shop shops. Does, yep, every shop does something different. That they, have, they have ways of doing stuff that you never thought of. Right. And plus, when you go there, you, you, you take things to them that they never thought of. Exactly. And they used to always say, as soon as you finish your apprenticeship in area, it's time for you to leave because you stayed in the shop where you served your apprenticeship. You would always be an apprentice. But if you moved to another shop, then you'd be a journeyman. And you would learn more too. Mm-hmm. So, and back in those days, back in the earlier days, uh, people would leave for ten cents. Oh, sometimes three or four guys would leave a shop for ten cent raise. And you know what? You could push your tools down the street. <laughs> just, yeah, that's a, yeah. You just, you you go you go over with Tetris down. You push it across the street. The industrial tool, you know. Right. right. So and down down the street there was another one. There was three on that street. So we're all at Tetra Tool back in the eighties, and. um you did pull the the worst thing on me that anybody ever did to me in the trade. Do you remember what you did to me? God, uh, <laughs> you did so many bad things you don't remember. I know. So, I, I, so back in those many. days, but but people don't realize, you know, these tool shops back then, they didn't have formalized washrooms, and uh, you know, the bathroom was a small room with a toilet and a sink. Yeah. There was no big round sink where five guys could wash. No, them, right, right. So I had been a Tetra for about a month, and you were giving me a lot of hell back then. You were just good, being good natured because you knew Freddie, you knew my brother. Yeah, we and you had never met, and you know here I come in. I'm 24. I got this beautiful Gerster box. I'll admit it. I was kind of a hot dog right. back then. I get it, you know. But I, I love the trade so much, and um, so I'm trying to get used to Tetra. Well, one day we're all had this bank of mills out there, and uh, he, he walked by me. I'm running a Bridgeport, and he said, "Man, he says, what you said? What did you do to piss somebody off here?" I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "You should see what somebody wrote about you on the men's room wall." Is this ringing a bell? No. I said, "Really?" I mean, I felt so bad. I mean, I was trying to be so nice to everybody. And he said, "Oh my God, Phil." He says, "Whatever somebody, you must have really pissed somebody off because you should see what they wrote about you." 
So I go in there and I'm looking on the wall for what somebody wrote. And there's a lot of stuff on the wall. I can't find it. Well, meanwhile, somebody had just done the worst dump in the history of the planet in there. Oh, Diggy. Yeah, we, that's when we got you in there. Yeah. So I'm in there. My, my eyes are bleeding. Trying to find yeah, I was naked going me. in there, the Hungarian polisher. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever somebody was new after you take end, a dump, we try to we try to get them to go in afterwards. Well, that got me in there, and I spent like three minutes dying in there trying to find what somebody wrote about me, but nobody ever did. <laughs> there was nothing there. <laughs> All right, so a couple of things. Well, there was a worse one than that. Do you remember Alan Head? Al Malvin. Yeah, you remember Alan? Yeah. Well, uh, somehow somebody had these these loaded cigarettes. They brought it from somewhere. So I went and he spoke like crazy. So I went over and I put one in his cigarette pack. Okay. So uh, we're waiting and waiting for him to light up a cigarette. Wouldn't you know, the owner, Amos Newman, goes over. You know how how much Amos smoked constantly. He goes over and he bums a cigarette from Mulvin. <laughs> and Mulva gives him the, the the loaded cigarette that I put in his pack, and Amos lit it up. It blew up in his face. <laughs> you know, and Amos would have appreciated that more than anybody. So, yeah, he he laughed like he laughed like crazy. Boy, those guys are a bunch of jerks, aren't they? <laughs> so, Jack, because uh, I want to keep this uh, on time here. A um, couple things I know. Uh, back in the mid '80s, um, you started getting into. Um, we started getting uh, what was called AuraCAD in the shop back then. And because, uh-huh. because both of us had built dyes and molds right from directly from the part prints, we'd pay that uh, guy named, I think Tim Kuzman would do a basic layout for us, uh, kind right. of give us our mold base size and some different basic yeah. dimensions, support pillars, locating, or, um, you know, just that stuff. And then we would actually have to take the part print and shrink it to the correct shrink rate for the material. Right. So being every dimension we had to change. Once you've done that, it's really not that big of a deal to be a mold designer, right? You'd steal all the dimensions from a DME catalog, right? And then doing it for years. Exactly. It's just a matter of drawing it in yourself. So I remember that when they got you AuraCAD, and I'll give Tom Newman at Tetra a lot of credit. He spent a lot of money on stuff, uh, technology, even when it was brand new, and unproven. And you were in there on that screen. That was the size of a shoebox. Do you remember that, how small that screen was? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So then all of a sudden you left and you went to high-tech tool and die. And over the years, uh, you, you you ran that place for like 20 years. So I want to finish off yeah. about a few things, um, your perspective. You know, uh, several years ago, you and I had a conversation. And, you know, you and I are cut from the same cloth as far as the um, love of the trade, love of the math, love yeah. of uh, working with our hands, producing stuff that's really cool. But I asked you several years ago about CNC machines. And do you remember what you said about CNC machines when they came into the tool trade? When they first came in, uh, when they very first came in, I didn't think it would work because of, of my experience at Penn Erie with the NC machines. And I didn't know how far they had advanced from that period on. So to the time they got them, first got them like a Tetra. But uh, I was really surprised. I, I said that it wouldn't be good, but I was I was wrong. It, it, and in a way, it isn't good because it made it so. Because of CNC machines and computers, uh, we never would have lost all of our work to China. Right. Back when when it took twenty years or ten years to become a toolmaker, and you had to do all the math in your head, and you had to have all this skill 
the CNC machines took that away. It made it so you could go to college to learn how to program a machine or learn how to how to design and be doing it, you know, the same thing that we do over here with 10 years experience. My, now, that never would have happened. If my, argument, my argument wouldn't be that one. I'll disagree with you here. You know, when the first NC machines, CNC machines came in the tool room, basically we were building mold bases with them or very yeah. simple parts. To me, what really changed the trade was when the 3D software came out. Oh, yeah, that's when you could start doing cores and cavities. Then that took out the decals, that took out the hydrotels, that took all the handwork. Right. Now all you need are three CNCs and a good programmer, and you can do 3D work right. unattended. And I'm not saying it's a bad right. thing, but I know, and this is what I'm going to finish up on, uh, you, as the general manager, finally had to deal with China to compete, right? Yeah. And yep. And did I hear that you had been over to China once or twice? Oh, yeah. I went over a few times. And tell me about uh, what's what's it like? What's your opinion of the Chinese tooling? What's it your opinion of working with the, the Chinese toolmakers? Well, the, the, the toolmakers are nice people. It's just uh, here, here's what the problem is. When you use stuff on a CNC machine, say you say – if you're cutting a pocket with a CNC machine, you know, you, you, you program it to use a two-inch cutter to cut a pocket. And what they do in China, they program it to cut a two-inch pocket, and they cut the pocket, and they take the piece out. They take the holder block out. They don't measure it to see if, if what's going to supposed to fit in their fit. See, they just, they just think because you program it and you do it, they don't understand a doll cutter or cutter spring or many different things. It doesn't cut exactly like you expect it to. So you and I know you, you would check the pocket size and say, oh, it's, it's 10,000 undersized. You would offset your cutter another 10,000 so you could take the rest of the stock out. And then you go around and take a spring cut. It's all those little things that we know how to do from our days of, of cutting pockets with a hydrotel. Right. And when you cut pockets on a hydrotel, you had a, it didn't always come out the way you thought it was, did right. it? You had to go back and take a skim, right? Right. Well, they don't do that. They don't do that. I was in China, and they were they were beating they were beating a big insert into a pocket. And I was walking by, and I said to the, these these Chinese guys I was with, I said, "That's not going to go in there." And they uh, they said, "What?" And I said, "No, how hard up? They only had it down in about an inch, Phil, <laughs> and it was about a five inch pocket. And they were beating as hard as they could with sledgehammers." Now, you know as well as I know, I've not got to go to the bottom because you know the pocket's going to be tighter as you get down in there. Right. Uh, I came back a few hours later, and they had the, the, the whole holder block up on a machine, and they were machining a holder block away. Oh, my to God. To get back down to the insert. They were going to machine it away and throw the holder block out. I mean, the first thing you would have done, would have, we would have turned it over and drilled holes in the, in the back and pound. tried to pound out with some right. big, big round uh, pieces of steel and, and or put it in the press and press it out. They, 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 I, I mean, I, them. they just cut the I holder mean, block and throw it away. I remember heating up the holder block to get it to expand. Yeah, and you could do that too. Right, all those things. Right. They just, oh, it's not going to come out. We're stuck. Let's just cut it off and throw it away. <laughs> get another one, you know. Because labor's cheap. It, it, yeah, labor's cheap. Well, another thing I was over there was, is in All Trust is the name of the company, I think. Oh, two or three thousand man shop. And we're sitting in the, in the in the engineering and the windows to the outside. And they have everything, all the latest uh, uh, CAD equipment, uh, the computers, everything, the latest stuff you ever saw. And everybody well dressed and trained to work on it. 
And I look out the window, and here they're building a highway. And it's, there's like a 1,000 men out there with wheelbarrows and shovels. And they were digging it by hand. Like ants. Yeah. It's like, like you see what they would have done 300 years ago. And I said something to the, to the, to the, uh, the one guy who spoke English. I said, Why, uh, what are they doing? He says, oh, he says, we, we have too, much, too many people. We need jobs for them. So we, don't, we do it that way. We do it the old way. It takes labor. They didn't care how many people it took to do it. So they all and it, they just shoveled and wheeled dirt all day, you know. <laughs> so, lastly, didn't you have a mold built there where they 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 screwed around with the steel, the certification? Yeah, a lot of them, quite a few. I had that. Well, tell, tell tell that story. What you you had a mold built? What was the material? It had to be stainless, right? It was yes. You know, it had to be it had to be stainless because and, the, uh, because of the plastic material. What was that stuff that was so corrosive? Uh, we were we were running uh, for. Uh, what do you call it? I can't think of it now. It, it, it eats, it eats, yeah, it eats. It eats. Uh, uh, it's what your your electrical boxes and stuff are all made out of. Okay. Uh, uh, and uh, you you run in regular steel one time, and it, it just colors and eats into it. You know. So PVC. You have, so you have this mold built, and the big thing about this mold, it, it had to have certified steel from Uteholm in it, right? Right. Right. But, and we got the mold here and ran it, and it and it didn't. And then I, t- I cut a piece of the steel off. I cut a corner off and sent it to Uteholm to be analyzed. They said, that's not our steel. So then I set on the spec, I set on the, the certs and they were counterfeited certs. So it wasn't, it was the PVC is what they run in the mold, polyvinyl chloride. Okay. That's what you got to have stainless for. And, uh, uh, the certs were also, were, 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 were counterfeit. They weren't, they weren't real. So they literally that, bought, that's, they bought cheap steel. And fake the certifications from you to home, right? And what did you do? Steel. They also they all, nothing. There's nothing I could do. Well, didn't you tell I ended me? Up, I ended up, didn't you tell me? You confronted the guy and said, "Hey, these certs are fake," and they're like, "Yeah, we lie all the time. That's our culture." Something yeah, like no, they told me that all the time. Every time I went, there, the guy that I dealt with, he said, "You got to understand, we always lie. We don't tell that we we that's that's our culture. We lie." He, he says that he says well, I think what I said that our my customer that was there with me. I said, why are we dealing with these people, Gary? I said they they stand right there and tell you they lied to you. What are we doing here? And I would go there and and go over the the, the design and maybe make twenty or thirty changes to them, and then the mold would come and none of those changes were made. They just did it the way they did it. Another thing is, uh, I got the idea that well, instead of letting them design it, we'll design the mold, and they got to build it to our design, and that was a good idea, I thought. So I we designed the mold, set the the, the database to them, and we got the mold. And these molds were for uh, Lamson sessions, and all the inserts and stuff had to be interchangeable with other molds because it's like like maybe they'd have eight molds uh, that were identical, and we got everything here, and. We started checking it, and everything was off just a little bit. And what they did, they took our design, which was in an inch, and they converted it to metric and rounded it off so that everything was close but not exactly the same. The mold ran, and the part was okay. The mold ran okay, but you, there, nothing was interchangeable, so you couldn't have spare inserts for it. So, it, of course, my customer was not happy about that. Now they got this mold that doesn't match any of their other molds. And you're responsible for it. You're yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So let me ask, and, and, and they're not responsible. They don't. They just tell you to go to hell. They just they're done with you. You know. So let me ask you this: In the end, uh, I, and this isn't to make high tech look good, high tech look bad. Was that experiment worth it in the end? Are they still having tools built over there? Or is that all done? Or did they find better places? What's the deal? I, no, what's going on? Well, how we get, got into it was uh, some of our customers, you, you know, high tech had a plastic shop. They right. don't anymore. They're separate. But they had a plastic shop. And our customers it, that gave them the molding work, like lamps and sessions, said, we'll, we'll give you the molding, but you got to get the molds built overseas because they thought they were saving all this money. And so uh, they were finally starting to see the light that it wasn't working. So I would have to get the molds built overseas. That's how I got into it. So that we could get the molding for the molding shop. We couldn't say, no, we're not going to build it overseas. They would go down the street to another plastic shop. They would say, yeah, we'll get them built over there. Right, that would do that. And you guys were lucky that you usually at least had a tool shop that could fix this this stuff. So do they still do that, or is that story kind of over? Uh, well, Lampson's got bought out by somebody else. Well, how about high tech? And now, does high tech still send stuff over there? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I, I don't know that much about what's going on, but I know that I don't think they do. I'm pretty sure they don't. So it didn't work for me. I tried my best to make it work, but it didn't. So in the end, Jack, you know, uh, I I I know that you and I are on such opposite ends of the political spectrum, and we'll disagree to disagree, but... Well, I thought you came over to my way of thinking, didn't you? I did, then I woke up. I was in sweating. <laughs> so my, my question for you is, though, this is one thing we have in common, I think. Um, I've never believed, and it's nothing against the Chinese people, but those people aren't our friends. And for us to lose our total manufacturing or a big part of our tool-making um, capabilities to this country. Um, I think it was bad. I think it was not good for, for the United States. Oh yeah. We lost a whole, a whole trade. Right. So see, we can agree on that. So, uh, my, yeah. yeah, So the, so to end tonight, you know, you look back at your trade at the trade, all those years in it. Um, you know, what are your, what are your best memories? What do you, what, what, uh, I know you closed out your career 20 years of management, but you know, when I hear you talk about your tools and I know the feeling, I know the feeling, uh, but um, what do you what do you re- remember? I know you have no regrets, but uh, what are your fondest memories of being in manufacturing tool making? Well, just being a tool maker, I was like you. I was proud of being a tool maker. I, I liked what I did. I enjoyed it. There were some tool makers that were that were that didn't like and complained all the time, but they're the kind of people that would complain no matter what job they were doing. Right. Uh, I was proud of it. I liked doing it. I had an experience. I was in this discussion group with uh, a bunch of people that we meet every week and discuss politics and, and all kinds of things. And most of these people were, were professors at Mercyhurst and Gannon. And one night after, or one day after our discussion group, we were standing outside. And the one guy, he was the head of the English department at that time at Gannon. He says, Jack, where do you teach? And I said, I don't teach. He says, what, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a tool dye maker. And he turned to his wife. He says, Sandra. She says, you know, Jack is only a tool and die maker. Only, right? Oh man, you know, you know, I was, I was livid, but I, I didn't show it. So uh, I, I had my wife invite him over to dinner a couple weeks later, and I, I brought Prince home with me and showed him what a tool and die maker was and what they do. Told him that I really took offense at that, and he was a really nice guy. He, he was so sorry, so I just didn't know. 
I says, I says, it's a very important job. I says, it's not just, you know, and that, that's an experience I had that, that shows that I, I had a, a feeling or a pride in what I did like you did. I liked running a tool, being a tool and die maker just as much as running a tool and die shop. And probably that more. way there was no pressure on it for me. Probably more in some ways, I would think, you know? Yeah, there was no pressure in it for me. You, you know, you worked with me, both of us running shops and working together. And you know that uh, at any minute I could say, okay, if you don't like it, I'll just go back and be a tool maker. You know, I'd be happy. So I have one last question for you. Sure. And, and because you stuck me in Steve Nagy's bathroom after that, you owe me one answer. Yeah. One thing I've always wanted. Okay. To, one thing I've always wanted. Though, you've talked a lot tonight about um, how much toolmakers are worth and how, how they yeah. should be paid more. And you talked about uh, Dr. D'Angelo making millions and the toolmaker makes thousands. You know, you, I mean, I, I, yeah. could tell, I could tell, you know, you've always felt that uh, it feels like that, you know, the toolmakers are um, kind of underpaid. And uh, for what they know, especially back then, you know, especially back then, you had to do all the 3D work yourself. There was no 3D. And right. how did you make the switch, Jack, from being this guy, very proud of being a tool maker, and all of a sudden now you're in management and you've got to tell guys, yeah, I can't give you a raise. Because I, I, you weren't the owner. So you got some pressure right. there to keep the rates right. down. How hard, that, yeah. that had to be hard for you. Well, like I told Walt many a times, uh, if I if, if high tech was my shop, it probably wouldn't be in business anymore because I would have given it all away. I I had to learn how to be, I had to have Walt there to sort of keep a lid on it because yes, I I always wanted to pay people more, but I could see the writing on the wall when the China thing hit that we weren't going to be able to give the raises like we had in the past. Right. And the one thing about toolmakers is we did make a lot of money. But what people don't know is we worked 55 hours a week. From the time I started when I was 17 years old, I started at working at a 55-hour work week. 10 hours a day. Half a day Saturday. Half a day Saturday. Standard work week. So we made really good money, more than most people. But, we, you know, you, you know, we had a polisher, you know, my Hungarian friend, right. that made over 100000 a year. Back in, the, back in the 80s. Back in the eighties, and he couldn't and, read or write. He, he couldn't read or he write. He could barely. He could, but barely. Just barely. He could fill out an application. Right. But he worked. Oh, <laughs> he, he worked eighteen work. hours a day all the time. You know. Yep. Yep. Well, those days are gone. Well, I hope you yep. enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed uh, telling your story tonight. That, that was fun. Very much so. Yeah, it was great. And I enjoyed. I enjoyed listening to Dick Forbes because uh, everything, everybody he talked about, I knew. So yep. that was good. Well, you know, I'm not trying to do this Kerner Tool and Die reunion, but I told my wife Heidi a couple nights ago, I said, you know, Jack and I are so far apart in politics, but I said, I know he's got a great story to tell, and I knew you did, and yeah. I'm, I'm glad you told it. So uh, I Good. appreciate you taking the time to do that. Give me a few days to get this uh, edited and up online, and I'll send you a link as soon as Great. All right, Jack. Okay. Have great. a good night. All right. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Bye. So that's it from here, Erie, Pennsylvania. Another craftsman story in the books. And, you know, these guys, I really think, really enjoy it once they get started. So somebody told me a long time ago, life is short and it's later than you think. So if you've got a great story to tell, uh, this is your, your legacy, not mine. And uh, I'd love to help you, uh, you tell yours. 
So uh, please contact me at philkerner at gmail.com. And the contact stuff's all over the com. Love to record you. Um, it's all audio, no video. And I uh, do like to put a picture of you up there so everybody knows who you are. But if you have a story to tell, uh, let's get it out there. Okay. So again, this is The Journeyman. Thank you to Industrial Sales and Manufacturing right here in Erie, Pennsylvania, ismerie.com uh, for helping me out. Um, I think they've got one show left. So if uh, you like what we're doing here and like to jump on board and uh, sponsor what I'm doing here, just uh, again, contact information at the com. We'll see you on the next edition of The Journeyman. I'm just a hard bird.